Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. This episode is brought to you by Battleborn Batteries, the best name in the RV and marine industry. These lithium batteries are designed and assembled in the USA, backed by a 10-year warranty. The best solution for your battery anxiety. So go check them out at BattlebornBatteries.com. Hi, everyone. This is Kenny, and I am so excited to announce that SnapPad has become a sponsor for the show. It means so much to us to have their support. I purchased SnapPads for our RV over two years ago, and I can honestly say if something happened to them today, I would replace them by tomorrow. They have saved my back and setup time by not needing to crawl underneath our Class A to set up blocks under our jack stands. They truly make setting up our RV a snap. RV snap pads are made of recycled rubber, saving room in our landfills. They not only protect your jacks, but they also protect the locations you park. For me, they reduce vibration in the fifth wheel, took 15 minutes to install and never come off. Snap pads also add a little something extra to the appearance of the jacks. Go check them out at rvsnappad.com. You are listening to Beyond the Wheel, a podcast about the people and ideas that drive the RV community forward. Hey everyone, it's tough to turn on the radio or the TV today without hearing about coronavirus. But what is it exactly? How will it affect RV life? What can we do to stay protected? Today, we have Dr. Sabrina Campbell on the show to answer these questions and more. So let's get this episode started. Hi, Sabrina. Welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on during this uh, tough time for everyone in the U.S. Can you tell us just a little bit about yourself and your role at the hospitals? What's your specialty? What kind of patients do you see? Sure, sure. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate being here and being given the opportunity to talk to everybody. So I'm a pulmonary critical care doctor. I work at hospitals across the country filling in when they're short, which it looks like there's going to be a lot of hospitals that are short right now. I am board certified in internal medicine, pulmonary diseases, and critical care medicine. So most of my concentration is on patients with lung disease and then also patients in the ICU setting. So I take care of a lot of critical care patients. So this disease is right up your alley. Definitely, definitely. A lot of the symptoms are pretty much the symptoms of every patient we see every day. Which makes it hard, I would imagine, to test for it or even know who should be tested for it. Definitely, definitely. So at the source of it, though, let's start out with what is coronavirus? Coronavirus is an RNA virus. It's pretty widespread, actually, in mammals, and it's pretty widespread in birds. We don't usually see it too, too much in humans, especially not this one. This one is actually pretty related to some of the coronaviruses that are related to bats. Coronavirus is not a new thing, but this actual variant of it is new for us. So the reason it's called coronavirus is actually because when you look under an electron microscope in the lab, it looks like a crown under the microscope. I hear a lot of people say that this virus is being blown out of proportion by the media. 
What are your thoughts on that? And do you think right now we're taking enough precautions and why or why not? Okay. So I don't think it's being blown out of proportion at this point. When it first came here and we were hearing about one case here, 15 cases there, I know it got a lot of comparisons. And even now it's getting a lot of comparisons to influenza. It's getting comparisons to how many accidents happen a year. So influenza, there's we've already had 12,000 deaths from influenza since the beginning of the season, since October. We've had over 600,000 deaths from heart attacks, over 8 million deaths in 2017 from cancer. And so when you look at the numbers, those things are more. But the thing with this coronavirus, this new coronavirus, is that we've never seen it before. And so what happens is with all of those other things, accidents, heart attacks, cancer, those type of things, you have treatments. So you have best practices you have vaccines for influenza that you can take. You have treatments like Tamiflu. With heart attacks, you have protocols for how you treat this, how you deal with these patients when they come in. Cancer patients, same thing. There's treatments. There's all these other things while this virus is new, so it doesn't have any of that. It doesn't have treatments. It doesn't have vaccines. And that's why it's such a huge problem. The other thing with coronavirus is that it is spread very easily and very quickly. So I can just kind of go into a little bit of the comparison because I know a lot of people will say, oh, but the flu kills so many people like we talked about. So let's just, I just want to briefly just go into the comparison between how flu versus this novel coronavirus that we're seeing. Okay, that would be great. So one thing with this novel coronavirus is the incubation time is pretty long. So when you're exposed to this virus, the incubation time can be as long as 14 days. So most people will show symptoms within about five days. 97% will show symptoms within about 11 and a half days, but it can be up to 14 days. With the flu, that's not the case. So usually a few days after you come in contact with the droplets from the flu, you'll get the flu, you'll have your course of disease, you'll get symptoms, you'll shed this virus for a few days, maybe on the max 10 days, which is not the case for the coronavirus. You get the coronavirus and you're sick. You have disease courses for the coronavirus and about, like they keep telling us, 81% of patients will have a mild disease. And when they describe mild disease, it's not just, oh, I had the common cold and I went about my day and I still went to work and everything was fine. You are really put down by this. So the mild disease also includes people with no pneumonia, but may also have pneumonia. Moderate disease, about 14% of the patients, those are people with pneumonia that's affecting greater than 50% of their lung. So it's not just a simple cold. And then when you have severe disease, you have your respiratory failure, your acute respiratory distress syndrome, your multi-organ failure, and that's in about five to 6% of the patients. And that's what makes this so scary is that people get so sick and they're sick for a long time. And to add to that, all those other things that you had mentioned earlier, the car accidents, the cancers, None of that went away. So this is just on top of all that. Doesn't that put extra stress on the hospitals that are already busy, understaffed? Yeah, that's definitely 100% correct. And that's the concern. That's the concern with this new disease is the fact that none of those patients went away. So influenza, you have thousands and thousands of influenza patients a year. And then now you add thousands and thousands of coronavirus patients on top of that onto a ready strain system. So when there's all these talks about shortages of your personal protective equipment or your PPE, your masks, your gowns, your gloves, a lot of these things have already been used for the influenza population we've already had this season because we're coming right in the middle of influenza season. And so you've already used up a lot of these resources and then now you're getting this influx of patients that's increasing exponentially. So if you 
have all these resources devoted to these patients. And let me tell you, when these patients come in, it is a big to-do, of course, because this is so contagious. They're in the ER. People have to go in with gowns, masks, eye shields, gloves. And when you're in an emergency room, not one person is taking care of you. An ER doc's taking care of you. A nurse is taking care of you. A respiratory therapist may be taking care of you. Lab has to get labs. Technologists have to come get chest x-rays. So all of these people need that equipment for just those few hours that you are in the ER. And when this physician or this team is in there dealing with this one patient, the ER is still dealing with other patients. There are still heart attacks coming in. There are still traumas coming in. There are still all these other things coming in. So it definitely puts a great strain on the system. One other thing is, well, a couple other things is that coronavirus lives on surfaces for quite a while. So coronavirus in general, when they looked at SARS, SARS from a few years ago, which is also a coronavirus, SARS can live on a surface six to nine days. They just recently did studies on this novel coronavirus and found that depending on the surface, it can stay on plastic and steel for up to two to three days, copper for up to four hours, can also stay on cardboard. So your boxes coming from your deliveries can stay on cardboard 24 hours. And so you might not be getting coughed on or sneezed on, but someone might have just come out of a room, sneezed on a table, you touch it, now you've touched their droplets that have been there for hours, and you infect yourself when you touch your face, your eyes, your nose, your mouth, mucous membranes, those type of things. If you touch something and don't touch your face, are you fairly safe? Is it just the touching of the face? Yeah, so it has to enter through mucous membrane. So mouth, mm -hmm. nose, eyes are generally the ones that viruses and colds and that type of thing enter. One other thing with the coronavirus versus say a flu patient is flu patients get better. So a lot of them will get better in a short amount of time. So usually, I don't know, five to seven days, they're usually feeling better, things are good. Unless they're really, really sick, a few of them will get really, really sick, but they'll get better. When you even have mild disease from coronavirus, it takes you like two weeks to get better. When you have severe disease, these patients are taking three to six weeks to get better. Wow. So this brings in the question and the problem that you've heard all over the news about ventilators and ICU beds, because these patients are going on ventilators or respirators, as some people call them, and they're on these for weeks in an ICU, in an ICU bed, and then more patients are coming in on top of them. And that's, that's the problem. Yeah, something that you said that sort of relates to how we travel as full-time RVers is that you could be traveling to a place and the person in the spot before you had the coronavirus, didn't know it. They are coughing and sneezing while they're unhooking their uh, RV from the power pedestal. And then you come in later that afternoon, get in that spot, you're touching that power pedestal and you could very well catch the virus from that. Definitely, definitely. And that's, that's the scary part about it. And although we don't want to walk around paranoid all day, it's a very real concern. It's a very real concern. So speaking of RVing, as RVers, and that we do have the ability to move and travel, is there an advantage to us maybe getting in an RV and driving somewhere warm? I've heard people say the warmer weather, the coronavirus won't do as well. I mean, is that a good idea for RVers? So first, I would disclaimer that in saying that because this is a new coronavirus, we really don't know how this one behaves at this point. But with previous coronaviruses, that actually wasn't the case. So it's been found in all sorts of climates. And even now, you'll see it's in countries all over the world. And some of them have warm climates. And it still has coronavirus. 
when they've looked at studies finding the coronavirus, there are some peaks when you go to some locations, there are peaks in the winter, but then they also have peaks throughout the, the spring and throughout the fall, which you wouldn't really expect if you were thinking just winter, but they definitely have peaks throughout the year. So it's hard to say if this one will go away or get better in the summer. We really don't know because it's so new that we really don't know. And at what point should someone who's feeling bad go to the hospital? If you start to think that you have this and you're getting fevers, you're getting cough, you're feeling short of breath, that's pretty common with coronavirus. There's a lot of hospitals that actually have lines where you can actually speak with a nurse that can talk to you about your symptoms and kind of decide if they feel like you should come in. And so a lot of hospitals are putting out 1-800 numbers and resources on their website for you to be able to call and kind of get triaged. Because we definitely don't want you coming in the hospital if you don't need to be hospitalized. Because if you come into the ER, first you have a risk of exposure if you don't have it. So by coming in, you're risking exposure if you don't have it. The other thing is, a lot of ERs won't test you if you don't have severe symptoms and need to be hospitalized because of the limitations of testing right now. So if you're getting to the point where you feel like, oh, you know what, my breathing is not good. I feel very short of breath. I would come in to be seen because you may need to be hospitalized. And that's the thing is that I would say you know yourself better than anyone else and you know your breathing better than anyone else. And if you're concerned about it, then I would consider coming in. A lot of times what we're seeing in reports from doctors in Italy and reports from doctors in China is that a lot of coronavirus patients will start to get better. They start to get better and then around between like day five through eight, they start to get worse again and they can get significantly mm. worse after they felt like they've turned the corner. So it's just something to be aware just because you feel a little bit better, you may not be out of the woods. So just be aware of your symptoms, be aware of your fever because once things start to get bad with coronavirus, they get bad very quickly. So if you, if you notice that things just aren't going the way you think they should, then maybe it's time to come in and be seen. So we've talked about when you should go to a hospital. What about your primary care doctor? If you have symptoms, people always want to know if they should go into their primary care doctor's office to be seen. So one thing I would say is actually don't go to your primary care doctor's office. First, a lot of the primary care offices don't have the proper PPE to even be able to see you, much less test you for coronavirus. So I wouldn't go in there. What I would do is actually call their offices. A lot of offices are moving towards telemedicine now. So they will call you and do phone consult. And this helps prevent other people from being exposed in the waiting room, prevents the doctor from being exposed, and it prevents you from having to leave your house. And again, being exposed if you don't have coronavirus. So I would say call your doctor's office first. Don't just show up there. You might actually not be able to get in even if you do show up there. Is it a good idea to maybe for a patient or for anybody that feels a little sick that maybe keep a log of how long they've been feeling sick or just? If they can remember, that would be fine. If okay. not, then, then it wouldn't hurt if they're going to have trouble remembering. Because okay. it's, always, it's always helpful information. So if they're going to have trouble remembering, then, then definitely a log wouldn't be a bad thing. Log wouldn't be a bad thing. But the main symptoms we're looking for are fever. And not all patients have fever. It's about 80% or so. Some studies, it's even only 40%. And some studies, it's just mild fever. It doesn't have to be 101, 102. Mm. Some people, it's just 100.4, low-grade fevers. Fever, shortness of breath, cough are the main symptoms we're looking for as far as coronavirus. But you can have other symptoms that are similar to other viral infections, GI symptoms, nausea, diarrhea, vomiting. It's less than 5%, but you can have them. So just being aware that it may not always be shortness of breath. Now, I heard the age group for the people most at risk of serious illness is over the age of 50. And 
a lot of full-time RVers are over the age of 50. Should they consider anything different symptom-wise before they go to the hospital? Not particularly as far as symptoms. I would say just being more aware of your surroundings, the buzzword of social distancing that we keep hearing, (laughs) but being aware of your surroundings, washing your hands, those are the things you need to watch out for. Mm. Along those lines, keeping in mind that coronavirus, especially in ages 50, 60 and above, does have a higher, especially 60 and above, has a higher mortality. You're more likely to die than someone in their 20s from this than if you had influenza and you were the same age. So it has a higher mortality than flu patients do. Oh yeah, that's a good point because although a lot of people die from the flu, a lot more people get the flu, I guess, than what we've had with this coronavirus so far. Yes, definitely, definitely. And and mortality in flu patients is low. It's less than 1%, 0.1% in some populations, 0.003 in others. It's it's lower. Of course, in older patients, it's a little bit higher, but it's still not as high as corona. Corona, this coronavirus has a 2.3% mortality. And in patients over 60 and 70, the mortality is like 20 times higher. It, it's 6, 7%. Some studies even as high as 15% in elderly. Wow. Wow. So it's just something to be aware of. And overall, I would say we see that in the hospital a lot for a lot of things, just because as you get older, there are other comorbidities. You might have high blood pressure, diabetes, other things going on. But you also, your immune system isn't as good as if you were 19 years old. But that's not to say that young people don't get very sick. We actually have a few in the ICU right now that are in their 30s and 40s, and they are very, very sick from coronavirus. So everybody just needs to be on alert. Now, for people that don't know, can you tell us what it's like to be on a ventilator? So I've never been on a ventilator, but I could describe to you. So it's funny because when we were in fellowship and training, they gave us nose clips and they gave us a mouthpiece and hooked it up to a ventilator to give us the sensation of being on a ventilator and breathing through it. And they switched through various modes on the ventilator and I did not like a single one except for the one that was essentially me breathing on my own with a little bit of pressure. But we've found that it's quite uncomfortable in the sense that, so I'll just describe it for people who haven't seen people on ventilators. Basically what we do when we're getting ready to put you on a ventilator, we give you medicines to knock you completely out. We sedate you, we paralyze you, and then we put a tube, once you're asleep, we put a tube down your throat that goes into your trachea and helps oxygenate and ventilate your lungs. And so after you have this tube down, then we give you medication to keep you nice and sleepy and keep you under so that you're not uncomfortable. Pain medication, and the pain medication helps with coughing too, and then some sedative medications. The thing with being on a ventilator is they've even looked at studies after someone has a critical illness, ICU stay, and being on a ventilator, and people end up with a lot of problems after beyond that. They've seen even like 40 to 50% of patients can end up with even PTSD from being in the ICU and being critically ill and being on ventilators because your day-night schedule's messed up, you're on medications, you're sick, you've got infections, you're on all sorts of things. I've encountered patients in the clinic later who have said it was a very unpleasant experience, but you need it, you need it. I'm glad you asked that, Sean, because I, I didn't know it was that bad of a thing. I, I always thought a ventilator was kind of just a mask that you wore and it just helps you breathe along a little bit. I'm glad you asked that, I had no idea. Yeah, I guess the point I was trying to make is that it's it's not like 
something that, ah, so they put me on a ventilator, you know? It's like, holy crap, I got to be on a ventilator. Yes, yes. And it's tough to wake up. And a lot of patients find this. It's tough to wake up and not be able to communicate with people. So usually in your regular life, if you need something or want something, you can just tell people. You're on a ventilator. You've usually got restraints on because we can't have you pulling your tube out. It can be a pretty, it can be an experience. It can definitely be an experience, shall we say. And then the other thing what, that comes to it is if you're in respiratory failure for an extended amount of time and you're on a ventilator, then we have to start talking about where we go from here. And every day you spend on the ventilator, there's risks to everything you do and you get weaker because you're sedated. Sometimes you're paralyzed if your oxygen levels are bad enough, all sorts of things. So it's just something, it helps buy us time, but the main treatment for most people on a ventilator is treating the underlying cause. I always say, I always say ventilators don't really save your life. It essentially buys us time so that we can fix the underlying problem hmm. and get you through it. And in the case of coronavirus, it's just supportive care. There's not really any cure. Exactly, exactly. So there's no specific treatment. It's all supportive care. So we work on giving you oxygen when you need it. We give you nutrition through your stomach. We give you medications to help your blood pressure if you need to bring your blood pressure up. And it's all just time. And these patients are staying, the physicians in Italy are talking to us and they're saying these patients are staying on the ventilator. They don't even start to try to wake them up or unparalyze them until we're getting to like 10, 14 days, at least two to three weeks before they even cry. So when you say that you're just trying to buy time, are you trying to buy time? You're treating the underlying issues. Is it that you're trying to buy time for the, your, the person's own body to start fighting Correct. Okay. Correct. Correct. Because we need that inflammation in their lungs to go down and their oxygenation, to, their oxygenation, oxygen levels to improve before we can consider taking them off of the ventilator. Okay. So switching gears a little bit. So uh, there's a lot of closing. Everything's shutting down. Mm-hmm. Not everything and not everywhere, but we just started, I believe today in Oregon, the campgrounds are closing. Why would campgrounds need to close? I always feel like we're very safe in campgrounds. We got space in between us. We're not really on top of each other too much. Why do you think they're closing campgrounds down? So I think some places it's more city or government ordinances that are saying that all non-essential businesses have to close and they don't consider campgrounds as essential businesses. I know a lot of places are fighting for, and some of the states have actually gotten approval to change the law and make themselves make campgrounds an essential business. So in a few states, they've managed to pass that, that they've petitioned for it and gotten that campgrounds are an essential business. But a lot of places, they don't consider an essential business. The other thing is, if you look around a campground most of the time, you usually see a campsite and there's like eight people around a campfire. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Campers are pretty friendly. So you end up with a community that's close and not really social distancing if you have a campground open and people are meeting. The other thing is meeting areas in the campground. So you may have a recreation center that people are using and who's going to be able to sanitize it and keep it sanitized. You may have bathhouses, all of these things. So you're bringing people together and they don't want people being brought together. Yeah, one thing we just realized today is that all the facilities at this campground that we're at are closed, but the laundry room's open. (laughs) So I doubt anybody's going in and cleaning the laundry room or people aren't cleaning it after they've touched it or before they touch it. So that could be a dangerous place, I guess. Definitely. That's, that can be concerning. And what about the bathhouses? Are, would you consider the bathhouses in the RV parks to be safe? 
Or do you have an increased chance of catching the virus from using a bathhouse instead of like your bathroom that's in your own RV? So I would say you're probably safer in your own RV because you're around the germs in your RV all the time and you know what germs are there and you know when it was cleaned last. When you're in a bathhouse at a campground, even if they are increasing their sanitization and disinfectant procedures and cleaning it more often, it's really only as clean as the last person that was in there. So they may have cleaned it half an hour ago, but then someone else went in there with coronavirus, coughed all over the walls, and now you're going in there to take a bath or shower and there's your problem. So so I would say it's only as clean as the last person. That's a good point. Every time I leave my RV, and come back in, should I wash my hands then? Because you said you're used to the germs in your own RV. Uh, so should I wash my hands every time I come back into the RV? I would, and I will say I am on Kenny all the time, even before <laughs> this, to wash his hands. I'm like, you need to wash off the outside. He's like, the outside? What's the outside? <laughs> but yes, I'm a stickler for that because I feel like you have touched gas pumps. You've touched the door handles of your car. You've touched all sorts of things when you were out at the grocery store or wherever you were. And then you've come back in your house and now you're spreading everything from the outside, even if it's not just coronavirus, from the outside, inside. And so I would suggest washing your hands when you come inside. What about some other things as far as like ju just general health protective measures that someone can take to stay healthy while RVing or just in general? Of course, we talked about hand washing and making sure you're washing for the amount of time you need to, at least 20 seconds and washing all over your hands, like between your fingers, fingernails, all over, not just baptismal sprinkles. <laughs> so making sure you're really washing your hands. The other thing you can consider is hand sanitizer. So hand sanitizer, as long as it has at least 60% alcohol in it, is pretty good for killing most viruses and it will kill coronaviruses. The usual things to help your immune system, getting enough rest, exercising, eating properly. So those usual generic things that everyone recommends. And then as far as viruses and bacteria, avoiding touching your face with dirty hands, avoiding touching your face at all will help if you're not introducing viruses and bacteria into your body. And then staying away from others. We want to be close and connected, but social distancing I think is very important. Avoiding crowded spaces, avoiding contact with the ill. Also, if you are sick, please stay home and stay away from other people. I know some people are sick and they're like, you know what, I'm just gonna take some Tylenol and I'm gonna power through and I'm gonna go hang out with my friends, but that's really not the greatest. That's really doing your friends a disservice because now you're exposing them to whatever you may have, even if it's not this. So staying home if you're sick and taking care of yourself, I think is very important. And then disinfecting and cleaning frequently touched objects. So your light switches, your door handles, things that you usually touch all the time, just cleaning those and making sure those are always clean. Cleaning them with bleach? Is it the Clorox? Is it the Lysol? Yeah, so it just depends. You have to look at the bottle and a lot of the bottles will say what it kills on there. And I actually looked at our bottles when this all started and they do, we have, we have Clorox and we have Lysol and it does say it kills coronavirus on the side of it before all of this. Hmm. But the EPA website and the CDC have a link where you can go and look for all the disinfectants that you can use to kill viruses and it'll tell you what viruses it will kill. So bleach does kill coronavirus. Um, it's fragile in the fact that about a minute of contact with it, a bleach solution, it will die. And so you can consider that. But there is a whole list. I think it's five, six, seven pages on the website for what you can use as far as cleaning and procedures for cleaning. You area. just said it was fragile, but I think that sounds like a long time. So if I bleach a table, 
it takes a full 60 seconds before it kills it. Yes. Okay. That doesn't sound that fragile so, to me. I think that's pretty common with most germs. Of Working in the lab, we, we're always worried about that. So we actually want surfaces wet for like two minutes, 90 seconds to two minutes to make sure it kills everything. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's interesting because we ran into the same thing at the gym because they give us wipes to wipe everything down, but literally you wipe it down and then someone comes and like sits on the machine two seconds after that didn't get clean. That mm. bacteria and viruses, they weren't killed by that 30 second wipe. And so that's something just to be aware of, even on that website, when it talks about the EPA website, when it talks about what, how long it takes to kill things, some things are like four minutes, five minutes. If you look at the bottle of the Lysol wipes, it actually says some of the things, it's, it's got the minutes that you need to leave it in contact to sanitize versus to disinfect. And oh, it's okay. on the side of the bottle about it. And, and can you go back to the hand sanitizer? You said when you can't wash your hands, hand sanitizer is the next best thing. And to make sure that it has 60% alcohol or more. Yes. What about these other hand sanitizers that don't have alcohol, but they have like a different chemical in them that I can't pronounce, but you probably can. <laughs> yeah. So there's some that have different chemicals in there that do kill a lot of viruses and do kill a lot of bacteria, but they may not kill the coronavirus. And so that's just something to be aware of. So the alcohol to... one is recommended by the CDC for at least 60% alcohol. And it's interesting, or maybe I just think all these things are interesting, for when they talk about cleaning surfaces, they actually recommended alcohol with 70% for surfaces, which I thought was interesting on the website versus the 60% for your hands. We're all full-time travelers. We're traveling quite a bit most of the time. Does that increase our risk of catching an illness like coronavirus? So I would say it depends on how you travel. In this time with everything that's going on, if you are staying more isolated and not meeting as many people, and if you are staying at one location and not moving a lot, it gives you less opportunities to meet new people, to be around new people who may be infected, to be shaking hands with people, to be exchanging, taking credit cards and handing them back or money and all of those kind of exchanges or stopping at gas pumps and pumping gas. So it depends on if you're moving a lot and interacting with a lot of people and a lot of surfaces versus if you're, even though you're full-time, if you're staying more stationary. So that's what I would think for your risk would be higher if you're moving a lot, touching more surfaces, interacting with more people than if you're staying put for a while right now. If we're full-timers, we should think about maybe holding in place a little longer than we might have anticipated. That's what I would consider. And I think we've been talking about that recently too, on whether we just hang out where we are now for the next few months, just to see how things go since we don't know. And yeah, we'll kind of go from there. So I just want to add one other thing, as everybody has seen about this hashtag flatten the curve and flattening the curve and hashtag social distancing and all of those things. And I think I just want to explain real quick why that's necessary. So when people are talking about that, they're not really talking about the fact that if we do all of these things with social distancing, that we won't get sick. They expect that about 40 to 80% of the population is going to get this at some point in time. The concern is when everybody's getting it at the same time. And then when everybody's getting it at the same time, you end up with situations like how Italy has right now. We talked about earlier about our health system having limited resources, a finite number of ICU beds, a finite number of ventilators. And when they talk about flattening the curve, it's the same amount of people getting sick. They're just getting sick over a longer duration of time. 
So it may be six months, it may be a year, it may be 18 months that that same amount of people are getting sick rather than them all coming in in the first three months or two months. And then we end up with a situation where we have to start making hard decision on who gets what because we just don't have enough resources. That's why I would encourage everybody if they can social distance to do that as much as possible. Avoid going out if you don't have to. Avoid meeting up with people outside your family if you don't have to. If you have to work, you have to work. But if the social events and those type of things, I would try to avoid them. Because we definitely, we've heard interviews and talked with some of the docs in Italy, and it's a tough, tough time what they're going through right now. And they have a really advanced healthcare system. I know a lot of people may think it's just that their healthcare system is not advanced, but they have one of the most advanced healthcare systems in the world. They just don't have the space and the resources. And that's the situation we can potentially end up in if we don't do what we need to do. So just something to consider. I don't want to make those decisions. <laughs> Here's something I didn't think about until we were talking, but does every hospital have a Dr. Campbell? In fact, no. There is actually a shortage of critical care and pulmonary doctors across the country. And that's how I've come to start doing this and filling in at a lot of hospitals that are short. And actually, I also do telemedicine. So I do electronic ICU via a robot. And I help cover some of those smaller hospitals. Some of these hospitals are six beds, seven bed ICUs, 10 bed ICUs in the middle of nowhere that don't have pulmonary critical care docs. And those hospitals, a lot of them are small and they're not used to getting sick, sick patients like you may see with coronavirus. So that's always something to consider. Even if someone says there are a certain number of thousands of hospitals, thousands of hospitals across the country, they may not all be equipped to handle these patients. Is that something I should look at if I'm traveling to a place? Like, uh, let's say we're moving our RV from where we're at to some small, small town that, you know, we're going to boondock outside of. Should I look at the hospital and see if they have critical care capability? So it might be hard to find out. I mean, a lot of websites will list it under their services. I've actually driven by someplace where it was like 24-hour doctor available all the time. I was like, what are the other options? But I was kind of surprised that the ER said that. But I, I, I think what will happen is if you end up at a smaller hospital, say you're sick and you end up at a smaller hospital and we've seen this, they'll evaluate you in the emergency room. And if they don't feel your ho their hospital has the capability to take care of you and the services you need, what they usually do is transfer you out directly from the emergency room. We have accepted when I'm at some of the bigger 800 bed level one trauma centers with a lot of critical care providers, we've accepted patients from smaller hospitals. We actually do it pretty frequently that they'll transfer them directly from the critical access center with no beds or the small ICU. They'll transfer them to us and when we take them. The one caveat to that is some people are too sick to move. That's the one caveat. But I, I wouldn't say, I, I wouldn't particularly go out of my way to look for places with critical care service or travel. Unless you have a particular health condition, I wouldn't go out of my way to look for them because they'll usually work on trying to get you where you need to go to get taken care of. But you're going to pay for that transport. Somewhere along the line. <laughs> Somewhere <laughs> along the line. And I can tell you, helicopters are pretty expensive. <laughs> they do transport you by that route. I think this is a good time to point out to other RVers that there are uh, ways to kind of avoid that. And they have like Good Sam has that travel insurance. I forget what it's called. If you get sick and have to be transported 
somewhere, they help cover that cost as well as the cost of getting your RV to wherever you end up. Mm, um, so, example. yeah, so th I think there's a few of them out there. Those may be good to look at, particularly if you're concerned about where you're staying might not have the type of care that you're going to need if you get sick. Yeah, that's definitely important. I think I think the the medevac helicopter rides are like ten thousand to twenty thousand plus dollars for just a helicopter ride. Wow! Depending on what sort of services you need on there, so it's definitely something to look in. And ICU stays in general aren't cheap either, <laughs> so that's also something to consider too. Kenny, you look traumatized. I'm always traumatized. <laughs> Every time I talk to you, I get traumatized. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's good that you that you were able to come on and talk to us and kind of tell us the side that you see as a critical care doctor, because I think it, and for me, it just reinforces how important it is to be vigilant and listen to what is being said by the doctors and practice that social distancing and good hand washing, because it sounds like being on a ventilator for a couple of weeks isn't exactly a party. It's definitely not a party. It's definitely not a party. And we really don't want, we don't want anybody sick. We want everybody to be healthy and stay healthy. We don't want people in the ICU. I know it's what I do, but I want to see people healthy and well, not sick and having to make these terrible decisions and having tough discussions with patients, families about where we're at right now and that type of thing. So and we don't want other people to get other people sick. It's true. Just because you're young and you're going to be fine and maybe you don't need to be hospitalized, you don't want to pass it on to somebody that maybe cannot handle it. Yeah. And you may not be the person that's going to be fine, even with no medical problems. And that's yeah. just something to always consider. And I think that's the, one of the scariest parts about it is that there's no way to predict. Yes, if you have immunosuppression or you have other medical problems, you're more likely to do worse. But perfectly healthy people can do pretty bad. And it's always, it's always pretty shocking and pretty devastating when that happens. So just, I agree with you. It's just something to think about being vigilant and following the instructions that are given. And one last thing, I've been using this self-quarantine or social distancing to uh, not go outside and exercise. Is it still smart to uh, get out and exercise? Sabrina was just out there today, Sean. We, we, <laughs> we've settled into a new campsite that we're hoping that we'll be allowed to stay here for the next couple months. And after we were all set up, Sabrina got her mat out and she went out on the patio and uh, she was out there exercising. So yeah. I'm going to guess that her answer is yes. My answer is yes. Continue to go outside and exercise, continue to do these things. I probably wouldn't go jogging with someone else that wasn't part of my family, but Yes, continue to exercise. It'll help keep you healthy, help keep your immune system strong and help you decompress and just get out from all the stress. I mean, every time you turn on the TV, it's like we're on this low level anxiety all the time and we're just on high alert right now. So I think it's a nice way to decompress and kind of get your mind together. And I think it's relaxing. Kenny may disagree. <laughs> <laughs> there goes my excuse. Yeah, there goes your excuse. <laughs> <laughs> So I think that's all of our questions for today. Is there anything that we might have missed or that you would like to add before we let you go? Uh, no, I think I've added quite a few things today. I think I'm good. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Sabrina. This is very helpful. And uh, hopefully all of our listeners will actually take what you say and, and think about it uh, before they throw a big party at their campsite or something. 
You're very welcome. And I appreciate, again, you guys having me here. And I'm happy to come back on anytime. For anybody listening that maybe has questions or comments, if you want to put them into our comment section here on the website, it's very easy for me to get a hold of Sabrina <laughs> and I can pass those questions on to her and uh, she doesn't have any problem answering them. And then I can respond to you and get those answers to you. Yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. We would like to thank Sabrina, a.k.a. Dr. Campbell, a.k.a. Kenny's wife, for coming on the show and talking to us about this, even though she is very busy seeing patients in the hospital. We hope everyone is safe, healthy, practicing good hand hygiene and social distancing, so you will be healthy to tune in and listen to the next episode of the Beyond the Wheel podcast. Safe travels, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Battleborn Batteries, the best name in the RV and marine industry. These lithium batteries are designed and assembled in the USA, backed by a 10-year warranty. The best solution for your battery anxiety. So go check them out at BattleBornBatteries.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.